Greetings and welcome to the pod. My name is Mark West and we have a real treat this episode. Chloe McArdle, probably the world's best ocean swimmer. Chloe holds the record for the world's longest unassisted ocean swim at 124.4 kilometres, has crossed the English Channel 37 times, was inducted into the International Marathon Swimming Hall of Fame in 2016, and was International Marathon Swimmer of the Year in 2014 and 2015. Her achievements are actually rather too long to describe right now. She is also an acclaimed coach and motivational speaker. Chloe was in hotel isolation when we chatted, having just returned from her 37th English Channel swim, and was very generous with her time. I started, as always, by asking Chloe if she's always been an ocean swimmer. It's really funny you say that because as a kid, I loved the ocean and we had a beach, family beach house that would go down to once a year and I'd happily bop up and down in the water. So I had water confidence and I loved being out in the little waves, nothing too crazy when I was a kid, but I was never given official swimming lessons. And it came to the point where I was 11 years of age and I realised when I went down to the pool with my kids, so my friends one day, because we were all kids, about 11, they were some of them 12, and they were able to swim a lap of the local pool doing strokes. And I was like, whoa, like, I was amazed. I, I didn't know how to swim like 10 metres. And uh, not only was I amazed, I was actually really embarrassed too that I had no idea because you know, when, when you're a kid, you just want to fit in with the other, the other kids, your friends. You don't want to be the one that's left out or the one that can't do something. And so that drove me to really learn how to swim. So many adults I meet, they hear about my swimming and they, they're like, oh, I have no idea how to swim. I wish I knew how to swim. And you could just see that they're going into this kind of fearing of shame or, or but they'd really love to know this skill, but you know, they don't have that skill. And I, I remember that clearly, whereas a lot of good swimmers, you know, they usually start at three or five and they're like, oh, I've swum all my life. But my story is very different and I know what it's like to, to not be able to swim. And so that makes me more grateful that I am able to swim because I can imagine what my life would have been like, you know, being never having learned how to swim. And it was a much less fulfilling and um, much less adventurous, I'm sure. It's, it's a really quick journey, though, from like year six or year seven, not being able to swim through to swimming the English Channel when you... I guess early 20s? Yeah, well, they're kind of the nurture or the nature topic is interesting in sport. You know, is it talent that propels some athletes ahead of others? Because, you know, not everyone can be at the top of their sport, even though a lot of us want to be in that competitive space. And I started really late, so I was behind the eight ball, so to speak. And through my Learn to Swim journey, so I started when I was 11. I did all the learning levels in four terms in one school year. So I started at the start of grade six and then I moved into the junior squad at the start of year seven. And then by the end of year seven, I was up in the senior squad and competing at state level and just outside finals for my age group, um, just scraping, kind of scraping in at that level in my best stroke. So I did have a super fast trajectory through learn to swim and the, the junior to middle level swim squad. 
And I think so it's not that I had a natural talent because I had done other sports before and I hadn't particularly excelled. Like I tried gymnastics and tennis and then you know, primary school level sport. Uh, I didn't really excel. I loved it, but I didn't excel in anyone. But the thing with this swimming is that I'm, from my very first lesson, I had this intention. Like I, set, I literally set an intention that I really wanted to learn how to swim. I wanted to get a swim a couple laps before I start. And then through that process, I really listened to what my coach said. And every time I said, do something, a lot of the other kids just snuck around. Remember, they put me in class with a five-year-old. So they're just, you know, they're having fun. They're being silly. They're enjoying being in the water. Whereas I was like this intense zombie where rather than trying to draw blood from people, I was just trying to draw the most I, ca- I could from every single stroke. So I think that really clear desire to just reach the simple goal of swimming 25 metres without a kickboard was something that was so important to me that I just really put so much energy into it. And then once I achieved that, I was so proud because, you know, I was now like the other kids my age. I could swim 25 metres and then I just reset my goals. So I started off with really simple, very simple goals and then through the learn to swim and the squad structure, they encourage you to just set a little bit of a goal a little bit higher each time. So I went from freestyle and backstroke in my first learn to swim level, and then they added in breaststroke and butterfly eventually. So there were, it changed the signpost where you can learn new skills, develop your confidence, and then keep setting the bar higher. And I literally just took that and ran with it. So through competitive swimming, I just constantly was setting higher goals for myself and wanting to swim fast times or wanting to make finals or wanting to win medals eventually in certain events. And I really loved that the journey where I could push myself, the journey of constantly trying to achieve excellence, not just in winning things, but the excellence is in, if your coach says you've got to commit to doing seven sessions a week or nine sessions a week plus gym, then you turn up for your seven to nine sessions a week. And I think that that's missing from a lot of gym sport isn't as focused as, for example, swimming. Swimming is like one of those few sports as a kid where they expect so much from you. I think if you look at the hours that swimmers spend each week in their sports um, as teenagers, I think only triathlon and gymnastics really come close into dedication week per week, the whole year round of, of what needs to go into be an elite level swimmer. So I just had so much training and conditioning physically. I had a really good coach who worked on technique and I was conditioned to get up at silly hours in the morning and to like thrash myself in the pool and I specialise in butterflies. So that basically set me up to enjoying masochistic activities I'm not sure if you're into butterfly, but most people try and avoid it where possible. I think that if you can train for 200-meter butterfly events, then you're well on the way to training just for the English channel. Um, but then I wasn't anywhere near Olympic selection standards, so my parents like, you need to give away, focus on school. The last two years of school were more focused about getting good results than getting into university. And then I, I did what my parents required. I got into university and then I was like, oh, this is okay. I, love, I was interested in university, but I needed, I needed something more. I didn't feel like I was fulfilling my purpose in life. So I was very, I was a driven sort of young person and I was working part-time a lot. 
So even between work and studying, it wasn't enough to fulfill me. And I just decided when I was 19, I wanted to be the best in the world at something. So that gets me into triathlons. I actually have a background in triathlon as well. Did that for two and a half years, but couldn't get to the elite level in that. So, you know, I failed to be an Olympic level swimmer and still believe I can be the best in the world at something. I just had that self-belief, even though I wasn't getting the results that I wanted. So I entered a marathon run and a marathon swim. I did them within a couple of months of each other. Did the marathon run in three hours, 37. So I was super happy with that. But the marathon swim just blew my mind. Even though I'd done little bits of open water swimming in the summer season because the calendar in Victoria is, is very rich with open water events, they're only one to two kilometers back then when I was getting into open water swimming. And I'd done them in triathlon, but the maximum that I would do with 1,500 meters. I'd never done a swim this long and this amazing and just being out in the wild and that connection with nature and not being enclosed in a, in a concrete box full of chlorine, which essentially every pool is. It was really liberating and it was something so beautiful and I felt such a connection to this sport. I just had this feeling inside me that I'd found the sport that I could be the best in the world at. And on that very day, I decided that I'd, I would, well, I was trying to be the best marathon swimmer in the world. So that was back in 2007. And then I was like, well, you know, how, how would you become the best marathon swimmer in the world? And the mecca of distance swimming, so anything more than 10 kilometres, is the English Channel. It's got the profile, it's got the treacherous waves, uh, the wind, the strong tide, the unknown conditions, and it, it's the ultimate challenge for, for distance swimming. So I signed up for that and 37 crossings later, we're talking now on your podcast. <laughs> I, I love that story that you did the Melbourne Marathon and a marathon swim just within a few months of each other. That completely different training uh, requirements, completely different physically. So that was the point where you, where you thought open water, long distance swimming, that's for me. So you could look at it that I found marathon swimming on that day when I did that event, but I look at it in a different way. I flip it. I'm like, you know, marathon swimming found me. Like it, it's a calling for me. Like some people you know, joining the priesthood or the nunnery or, or having children is, is a calling for them. And for me, it was being the best in the world in some sort of sport. And I wasn't discriminatory at the start. I didn't care what sport it was. I just wanted to, to find that vehicle. And, and then when I did that swim, there's just so much clarity on that day and in that moment. And I knew I knew where that where my ultimate goal was going to be. And, uh, yeah, it was just a, it was a beautiful feeling. I think as humans in life, there are you know, a few turning points in our life where we're like, this, this day is going to change my life from here on in. You know, I found my purpose or I've got clarity or I know I'm about to start an amazing journey and I just I had that moment on that day. So you decided that to do the English Channel and there's a there's a rigmarole there. You've got to, got to set that up and find boat pilots and accommodation and all the rest of it. And I'm sure now you're very well rehearsed at doing that. But what was that like the very first time that you did it? The very first time was many years ago. So I swam the English Channel for the first time in 2009. Um, and it was quite overwhelming to start off with. I was a young person when I signed up, um, 22, which you know, I think it's a young. Uh, I didn't have... I didn't have family support and I was living out of home. So I was literally living paycheck to paycheck. Like I was earning $350 a week, but my rent was $150 a week. 
So I put the cost of my swim on my credit card and I didn't really have anyone that was checking in to say, how's your training going? Or we believe in you. I did eventually find an, an open water swimming group with some people there had swum the English Channel before and that was good. So the later on in the piece kind of gravitated to people that had some experience and really wanted to be involved in my journey in some way, which is really good. And then a few months after that, this is now April of the year I swam the English Channel, I then got a new boyfriend and met him through, he was training up to swim the English Channel as well. And then from that moment, uh, I had so much support around me. It was amazing because we were going on this incredible journey where he was training up to swim the English Channel and I was training up to swim the English Channel and we could chat about it and we could check in with each other's training and then we booked our combination together over there, we booked our travel together and it was it was just such a supportive thing for me. So I would never uh, encourage anyone to swim the English Channel without getting a family or their partner or a good friend involved and hopefully with that person being the same person they actually travel to England with if you don't already live in England, because it's a journey that you, it is really tough. There is so much cold, long swimming that you need to do and to try and manage that and manage travelling over there and, and sitting in town and waiting for the swim and waiting and waiting because you don't know what day it's going to be in advance, which is completely screws your head. It's not a journey you want to do by yourself. So um, I, I didn't start off with much support. I didn't start with anyone particularly believing in me, but just... Um, through the process of just keeping on training and keeping on believing in myself and eventually people came into my life. And now I have a lot of support, which is great. But it wasn't always like that. It was a very different story to start off with. That must have been an incredible experience, that very first one. And then in the next time you went back, you went back the following year and thought, oh, well, I've done it once. Why don't I do it twice now? And so you went from a single to a double straight away. Well, that's what the record books show. But the deeper story there is that I did so well in my first marathon swim that, and I met this group of people eventually that had done an English Channel single crossing, and I would outswim them like there's no tomorrow because I had a big competitive swimming background, and they were master swimmers that had just built up and just managed to swim the English Channel. So I thought, well, if they can swim the English Channel a single crossing, I reckon I can do a double crossing. So I actually was training up and went to England my first year to a double crossing. I got into England, swam to France in 12 hours and three minutes, popped out on the other side, turned around, got back in, swam for another oh, just under 13 hours. So I'm now two-thirds of the way back to England. So what had happened in about hour 20 is that both in force four and five conditions, so like really bad wind came in and whipped up two-and-a-half-metre waves, and I was just getting smashed and pounded by these waves. And by then it was pitch black, so it was into the night because we're now hour 20 into the swim. So for the last five hours before I was pulled out, I was getting smashed by the waves. I was hypothermic. We haven't really talked about the conditions of the English Channel in detail, but the water is really cold. It's 15 to 17 Celsius. The body temperature sits between 36 and 37 Celsius, so literally every minute you are out in the English Channel, that water, that huge mass of water is extracting heat from your organs. Literally, it's extracting your heat. So your body has to work really hard to try and maintain its core temperature. 
with all the water around it, it's 15 or 17, depending on when you swim, the channel, what month. But your core temperature needs to keep maintaining 36 and a half. So it's working really hard in the background whilst you're also swimming nonstop for several or for me, you know, 20 plus hours. And so eventually my body was just struggling. I was hypothermic, cold, it was pitch black. I couldn't really see. And then the boat captain just momentarily lost me. They were out checking for sandbars because then, you know, the sandbar close, but they move around a lot, the sandbars do. And so they were out busy checking something else out and momentarily lost me. And I was out there in the English Channel screaming, don't leave me behind. I was terrified. So my first English Channel experience was just was terrific. And I think a lot of people would have gone, oh, God, that was horrible. Look, I've done a single crossing. I'll be happy with that. And, you know, and that's a great achievement in and of itself. You know, and I'll go back to my normal life and continue with whatever I was doing. But for me, that wasn't enough because if I wanted to be the best in the world, I'd have to do more than a single crossing of the English Channel. At that point, 22 people in history had done a double crossing. So English Channel is 34 kilometres. So when I say double crossing, I'm literally meaning 234 kilometres. Get out and you've got less than 10 minutes that you can stay on the French shore line. Get back in, swim 34 kilometres later. So 22 people had swam this 68-kilometre return crossing swim. And I... I knew that I, it was something that I, I needed to do, but I also felt like it was my destiny that I was being drawn to this thing. So I wasn't opting in. I wasn't choosing to do this activity, but this, this was me. This was my, my future, and I was just moving stroke by stroke closer to my future. So when I wasn't successful in that first year, it was like, well, that's my destiny, that I choose, not that it's chosen by the universe for me. And if it's not going to happen this year, then, then it will happen next year or another year. So I went back in, back to land when I was very sore and tired. But in the next couple of days, I went and investigated some other boat captains and I ended up meeting the boat captain who escorted Susan Maroney across the English Channel. So she's done a single crossing and the double non-stop crossing. She was the only Australian to do a double crossing before I did it. So I, I held this boat captain in, in high regard. I signed up with him. And then the very next year, that's when I, I went in and I did my double crossing in 21 hours, 48, which, you know, to some single crossing swimmers, which is nearly everyone, it's not an uncommon time for someone to cross the channel in 21, 22 hours. So, you know, it showed that I, as an athlete, I very physically capable of doing a double crossing. But, you know, there's some crazy stuff that happens in the English Channel. And the first year was, was really crazy. And I'm really glad that I haven't had a similar experience like that at all ever since. So I changed boat captains. I changed associations. I uh, changed boats. And, yeah, haven't looked back from there. I was going to ask you a little bit later, but I, I think I should ask you now. What goes through your mind? That's a long time to be by yourself, 22 hours, and, you know, there are some longer swims in this list that we're going to come to. How do you keep yourself entertained, or are you meditating, or what? what is going through your mind? Yeah, that's a really common question I get. Being alone by yourself with pretty much just your own thoughts is it's a really intense experience if you're doing it for dozens or a day or two nonstop. And the human mind is a curious thing and so much research is being done 
on the human mind in the last five or ten years, neuroscience is coming up with some amazing things. I found that myself, there's, there's different things I think about at different times. The best place for me to be in is to be zoned out. So it's like this active meditative state where I'm not consciously thinking about anything in particular. So I'm not making to-do lists or shopping lists in my head. I'm not thinking about time. The best place is to not think about time and to be in that moment. And in in that moment, to kind of get in this really good headspace, then I focus on my stroke technique. So, for example, you don't want to drop your elbows in the underwater phase of the freestyle stroke because you lose power. So I was thinking to myself, I'll be reminding myself, high elbow. Uh, then what I'll do is I'll make sure I breathe to the left because I'm a predominantly right side breather. So I just you know, get in the rhythm and keep reminding myself to breathe to the left. So I really focus honing on the, the physical elements of my stroke and my form and just get into that space where I'm just thinking about that. It's kind of like in a flow. The worst place I can be in is when I'm in severe hypothermia and all my brain can think about is how cold it is. And I, if you've never done cold water swimming for hours and hours on end, and by cold water I mean like 16 degrees or less, what happens is eventually you will get hypothermic at some point if you stay in. And what it can feel like, and I coined, I thought I coined this phrase and then I started hearing other people say it and I think they just, they just say it because it's true for them. When you get really bad hypothermia, it is like heat is leached away from your bones. It's like you can feel the blood just being extracted, the heat extracted from your bones, and it feels like your bones are turning into icicles. The most horrible feeling. And so at those, if you ever get to that point, your brain is like, you've got to get out, you're cold, get out, get out. Your survival mechanism is going into overdrive. And it's at that point that you need to be able to override that messaging. And that is not easy. You're basically trying to override, you know, like tens of thousands of years of evolution, which is your body trying to not let you kill yourself. And that's a really, that's a tough thing. And a lot of swimmers struggle with that. And I've struggled with it at times. And when it's at its worst, um, I can't just, I have a few techniques I use, but I can't use my normal technique because this voice is too strong. And my very last trick in my bag and all my other tricks aren't working is literally just to count my strokes one by one. And this is what I did when I was successful in my triple crossing of the English Channel in 2015. I started counting my strokes and I needed to do that to shut out the noise coming into my head saying, you're so cold, you're so cold, you're getting hypothermic, you know, you maybe you... No, I wasn't thinking maybe she'd end the swim, but it was just this horrible, you're too cold um, messaging. So I counted my strokes. I got to 10,600. And the people on my boat, my crew, they were really confused because they, they were worried because I was so quiet. So on my feet, every 30 minutes, they lowered down a drink bottle with um, nutrients in it because I need constant supply of energy, water for hydration, but also the water for heat because of all this because my core temperature is constantly dropping or it's fighting to, to stay high. It needs warmth wherever it can. And the only warmth you can get is by a drink because you can't wear a wetsuit and et cetera, et cetera. So they were getting worried because I was so quiet. And the reason I was so quiet was just trying to hold the number that I'd finished my stroke on before taking that speed. And I didn't want to skip a number. Like I couldn't round numbers. In my head, it was so important 
to do this legitimately, it literally had to be stroke by stroke. So I'd be taking the speed and I was completely stunned because I was holding a number like 907, 967, 967 in my head so I didn't accidentally forget where I was at or switch numbers. So if anyone there is really struggling with your six-hour cold water swims, you're training up to the English Channel, and things get really bad, maybe try counting your strokes because your mind has to stay busy because you're probably stroking about one stroke a second. And if you're constantly counting, it's really hard to get anything else to get in your brain. How do you know when that voice is too loud and it's time to stop? Do you rely on your, your crew to tell you that? Because I imagine you're so focused, you're probably not in the right mental state to make that call. Or are you? How, like, how do you know? That is really interesting. So there's like two types of swimmers. And now that I've been a coach, being a coach, coaching people swimming with channel, I've coached 150 people as relays and solo swimmers over the last seven years. I've learned so much more about English Channel swimming than just being sort of myself, even achieving what I have in the English Channel. So there's two types of swimmers I come across. There's the swimmers, and some of them say this to me when they join the program. I don't, I don't elicit this from them, but they'll go, they'll go to me, Chloe. I'm really good. do everything and anything that is required to get to the other side. So that is that is a strength. People have told me this. They've always delivered. They're not bluffing, and they're not just dreaming up that they're like this. They've always been like this. People have said that. So it's a strength because when things get bad in the English Channel and occasionally people get really seasick or occasionally they get hypothermic or occasionally the conditions go terrible and they've got to keep going for many hours, it is a strength to have that sort of mentality. But on the flip side, if you have someone with that personality and they are moving from moderate hypothermia into severe hypothermia because there are degrees of severity, then probably not going to notice that they're getting worse. Or they're probably going to think, I'll just override it because they don't know what severe hypothermia is like. They probably never had it before. Severe hypothermia is when you're close to unconsciousness. And most of us don't get that point in their training, which is a good thing. We don't want to get that point. So they've never been to that worst point. They're not able to recognize it in themselves, but also a sign of severe hypothermia is literally, a sign is that the swim of the person because some people get hypothermic for all sorts of reasons, that they're not able to diagnose their condition correctly. They will never actually understand they're in severe hypothermia. I've been in a situation where I had severe hypothermia and I didn't know where I was. So in 2011, my first attempt to swim a triple crossing of the English Channel was unsuccessful. They pulled me out. My pace had dropped. This is towards the end the last couple of hours. My pace had dropped significantly. I was starting to talk gibberish. I was, I ended the last thing that happened was I was swimming with one arm. Now, I didn't know I was doing any of this. And if they'd said that to me at the point, at the point in time, I would have wasn't coherent enough to even understand that I was doing that. So in, in those situations, the crew needs to intervene. And if you've got a swimmer who's totally dedicated and will swim to unconsciousness, like some have that mindset and I've had that mindset in the past, it's very hard to actually tell that swimmer to get out of the water because it's literally not in their, it's not only not in their vocabulary, it's just not in their consciousness of being. So back in 2011, my crew were like, they didn't want to pull me out because they didn't want to be the ones to make the decision to end my swim and end my dream and they knew how much I put into it. And it's my main focus. It is my career. It's not just the thing I do once in my lifetime and that's it. It's 
the big thing, the double crossing or triple crossing of the English Channel. So they were holding off until the last possible point, giving me every opportunity, which, you know, I'm grateful for that. But then there's this huge grey line where the crew need to figure out at what point do we swim her out because potentially they're going too far. And it's really hard to know exactly where that line is. So they did eventually call me out, which was good because when then they took me to intensive care, the doctor in intensive care said if they'd left me in 30 minutes longer, I would have been dead. Then my core temperature was 28 degrees. So it, you know, it's, a, it's a real issue and the crew crews need to be aware that they may have to override swimmers' wishes and do really hard thing. No one really wants to do that to a swimmer. Um, but we can't trust a swimmer to always look out for their own welfare when they're so focused on reaching a goal, which is which is a strength. But it can be in a life-threatening situation. It can also be their Achilles heel. is you don't like severe hypothermia, you don't know you have severe hypothermia. So when they when they pulled me out of the water, I don't really remember what happened. I just remember feeling really happy and like, yeah, you guys and I was in such good spirits. And I just want to tell you a bit more of this story because I think this is pretty funny and I think your listeners may enjoy this. So I had um, my my then husband, we're now divorced, so we won't go there. Anyway, I had him on one side propping my arm up, trying to help me walk. And then I had Michael Redford, like a legend of channel swimming, son of Des Redford, who like I'm, I'm sure another call you can talk about how amazing he is. But anyway, another legend is also from the English channel. I had them either side of me, propping me up, trying to get me into the hospital. And like I was in good spirits. I didn't know I'd failed the English channel. And I thought, I was like thinking to myself, this is odd. Where am I? So I looked at one and I said, where am I? And they had this, like just this gaunt, like this, just like a face I couldn't even recognize. And I thought, oh. And then I looked at the person's face, I think it's my husband, and I thought, why is he looking so bad? And I said, are you sick? Because I I saw that we were approaching the hospital and I got no response. And then I looked to my left and I looked at my left and I was like, are you sick? And then I got no response. And then I said, am I sick? Oh, wow. <laughs> and they said nothing. And they, that, that is something I do remember. And then they were walking forward a bit and they got me into a wheelchair. And I was like, why am I in a wheelchair? <laughs> I was so confused. And then they wheeled me off. So I think I realized in the next few hours what was going on. It's just, it's another example of how careful you need to be with hypothermia. Don't trust a swimmer when they say that, <laughs> that they're fine if you think that they're hypothermia because you're probably the crew, the only sane person in that conversation. Sorry, so what was, it, what was your question again? <laughs> well, I don't know, actually. I think I was thinking, like, so maybe you, did, maybe you didn't feel too bad. I mean, did you need a break after all of that? Were you, were you keen to get back in the water and try oh, the English the break, checking again? Yes. You want to try the English Channel again or...? After that, or need a break? Yeah, so back then I wanted to be the first Australian and the fourth person in history to swim a triple non-stop crossing of the English Channel. So get in England, swim to France, get out, swim back to England, get out, swim back to France. And that was like a monumental 
feet. No one had done it since 1990, so no one had done it in 25 years at that point. And it was just this goal that was seared into my head. Life got double-crossing a few years earlier, but it was who I was meant to be. I already felt like I was a triple-crossing swimmer. It's just that I had to close the gap on actually getting to France for a second time. So it was my identity. It was, it was everything for me. It was the most important thing in my life at that time. So it wasn't really a question of whether I'd go back or not. It was a question of when I could get a booking and what I needed to change. Because obviously, nearly dying wasn't part of my plan in trying to get to France. And also stopped me being successful getting to France because you have to clear the water. So even if I died and I kind of floated in on a wave to France, you still have to clear the water over your own thing. So I really did have to be alive and a tiny bit functioning at the end of that second class in the front. And we had 60 minutes following the journey that year. This is back in 2011. And that was really fun. And they came to visit. They were so worried because they saw me like literally near death. And they were part of the experience. They didn't contribute to my condition, but they felt some sort of ownership because they were part of that journey. And they were so moved and worried about my condition. They came and visited me in ICU. And Charles Woolley, who's such a character, he did an interview with me in hospital and I've got, you know, I've got oxygen, therapy, therapeutic oxygen, and I've got an intravenous drip and I had fluid in my lungs. I had a condition called swimming-induced pulmonary edema. Basically, it's, it, we think it's uh, an effect of severe hypothermia. There's an excess of blood in your internal organs because, when your body goes into severe hypothermia, it shunts all the blood to your internal organs because trying to get as much heat as possible to your organs. So then there's now an excess of fluid and the fluid went into my lungs. So I flew into my lungs. I had this condition. needed oxygen, basically, to be able to breathe okay. So I'm there lying in bed with the biggest grin on my face. <laughs> Charles Willie is sitting on the chair next to me in the bed and saying all gentle and he's like, you know, do you think maybe... You think maybe it's time to like just give this goal away? <laughs> and I look at him with this you know, big, big smile and beady eyes, and I'm like, no. And like, I didn't have a lot of oxygen, so I didn't sound as enthusiastic as I do right now. But I was like, no, uh, I can't wait to get back in and have another go. And then the camera just pans to him and he's like, like you see his face, like, oh, my God, I don't think this is a good idea. So but I made a good story. <laughs> Have you caught up with him 37 swims later? Actually, we do text each other sometimes. He lives in Tasmania, so he sends me text. He lives by the, the beach and he's got a dog and I'm very fond of my dogs and, and fond of the water as well. So... Uh, we do chat occasionally, yeah. And and how much harder are multiple crossings than single crossings? I mean, I imagine it's more than twice as hard. Is it, uh, I think I read somewhere you thought it was maybe eight times as hard. Yeah, this is like it's a really interesting thing. I've mentioned earlier that the longer you spend in, in the cold water, you know, the higher chance of hypothermia, and eventually everyone will get hypothermia if you stay in because you can't just stay in indefinitely in cold water. Humans are not designed. It's a, it's a very unnatural environment for him to be in, to function in. So for me, I seem to get quite bad hypothermia at about hour 20 to 25. And then I'm literally just overriding my survival instincts for the rest of that swim in the English Channel. And this is why I like single crossings. I've been doing the last few years so much. I just get in, pop out the other side, and, you know, and I'm like, I'm done. I'm not worrying about dying from hypothermia in a single crossing, which is a relief. So 
back to your question, you do have to forgive me and your listeners because I sometimes digress. I get stuck in my little stories. Um, so you, you feel free to, to rein me in <laughs> if you ever want. Um, okay, so now it's reset. So much harder is my answer. <laughs> Before I did my double crossing, I had some an advice from a lady who'd done a double crossing. And it was really good advice. So if anyone wants to do a double crossing, first of all, I think you need to get your head checked. <laughs> Second of all, if you really want to do double crossing, here's some advice. She said, think of a double crossing like you're only doing one crossing of the English Channel. And you might be thinking, well, how does that work? You're going to do two nonstop, right? So what she said was, the first crossing is your warm-up. And then when you get out of France, then you start the crossing. Because in a double crossing, the first crossing, it doesn't like... It doesn't really count because you're there to do a double crossing. If you do a single crossing and you think that, you know, you think you're halfway or you think you've achieved a success, what can happen is that you get lulled into false sense of security and if things get tough in three or four or five hours later, if you feel like you've got that success, that run on the board in some way already, your mind can flip back, kind of regress and go, oh, I can get out now because I've already got the achievement and I've already done a single crossing and that is an achievement. So if you view that first crossing not as an English Channel swim, which for most people is a big achievement, you just view that as your warm-up, which also means don't go out hard. And then when you get to France, that's when things really get tough. Because there are so many swimmers who swim a single crossing. They get out of the and they have some energy in reserve. I'm not saying a lot, but they have some. And they think that that's some bit of energy they have they think, oh, I could do a double crossing. And they literally have this kind of this fantasy in their head that, yeah, I can do a double crossing. But a double crossing is way much more than that little excess energy you may have had. Not everyone has excess energy. Some people collapse straight away. But the people that do think that, oh, you know, I'll just add another crossing on. But it's not twice as hard as a single crossing. This lady, I I spoke to you, she said it's like eight times as hard as a single crossing. And I agree with her. Because you are starting that second crossing exhausted, even if you don't go that. You're starting that crossing having been in cold water from anywhere from 10 to 16 hours. So you're starting in a depleted state. You're not starting fresh. When you start a single crossing, you start, well, as fresh as you can get, usually on very little sleep because of man's and all that and late notice. And you are starting in that exhausted point. So I would say, single, sorry, double crossing is eight times as hard as a single. I would say triple crossing is 100 times as hard as a single crossing. I've never done a quadruple crossing in the English Channel. The first person did in history last year, Sarah Thomas, absolutely amazing. I think I'm one of the few people in the world that actually know how, can, can conceptually understand how hard a quadruple crossing is. So I'm probably one of the biggest admirers in that respect um, because, you know, until you swim the English Channel, it's really hard to actually know what it's like to get in there and to fight through everything you've got to fight to get through the other side. And so the same thing applies to like single crossing people. I don't think they can really conceptualize how hard a double crossing is until they get in and they, they have a go. So, yeah, I don't like to, to dance on people's dreams because I'm someone who's also a really big dreamer and I have goals that stretch me exponentially. But then also there's a lot of people who want to set these really big goals, but they're not necessarily committed to the process of achieving them. And that the process is often harder than the swim itself. And that is that training, huge load of training you need to take the double or triple crossing consistently, you know, 
three years or two years or three years. And that's where, where a lot of the fight is in finishing these travel crossings. It's, you know, it's a preparation before you even get to England. So what is your training load like? How much... I mean, you're, you're not exactly coming off a, a, a no-swim base, but, but if you're preparing for the English Channel, what's your training load like per week? Well, there's, there's no one set standard. If I'm training for, like, for example, in 2017, I was training to hopefully uh, be the first person to make quadruple crossing of the English Channel. That mileage I was doing week to week was huge. It was between... We're sitting usually between 70 and 80 kilometers a week, a combination of interval quality training in the pool plus open water swimming that was cold to replicate that cold in the English Channel. And then the longest swim I did in my preparation for the Channel that year was 20 hours non-stop in Jarvis Bay, New South Wales, which is the location that I hold cold water swim camps. They run for Channel and Marathon swimmers every year. So it's a great location. The water temperature was 15. It was perfect. The air temp dropped Celsius overnight. Uh, it was a it was a long time to be doing the training swim for, and that was about a big year of volume. But then the last three years, I've been only quote unquote doing single crossings, so I don't didn't need that huge volume. Um, the last few years, I've also been working through some challenges. Um, I've been diagnosed with post traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and haven't been diagnosed with depression, but I was probably depressed as well with all that going on. Um, so that's very low mileage, probably only on average 25, maybe 30 kilometers a week. Um, and COVID this year was extremely challenging. I couldn't act at the pool for interval training for full two months before I left for England. I got two weeks of interval training in before I left for England, which is like hardly anything. So I can swim the channel on, on minimal training these days if I'm doing a single crossing because it's like a, it's a tough training swim for me, a single crossing. But if I was attempting a double again or a triple or a quadruple, I would go back to huge volume. You did the channel six times in, what, two months this year. So <laughs> it's not like you just went over and sorted over. You still did it multiple times. Back in 2016, I wanted to beat Alison Streeter's record for most crossings in a season. She had it at seven crossings. She's the person in the world with the most overall crossings. Amazing woman. So she's sitting at 43 crossings in the channel. And so I wanted to bump her off that kind of yep. <laughs> that, the title. Um, so I did eight that season in 2016. Wow. That's the new record. So is your plan to go back next year and do the remaining six? Yes. I have six more to go to get to 44. And it's going to be really tough because a lot of swimmers uh, push their swims from this year to next year because they either couldn't get to England because of travel bans, like Australia has technically, even though I got around that. Um, or they didn't want to wait out two weeks in quarantine, which a lot of countries were required to do with people travelling from those countries if they were travelling to England. But a lot of people couldn't do that. If they can't swim for two weeks, they can't go and swim the channel. So a lot of people have delayed for next year and it's been very hard, very, very hard for me to get those swims in. Uh, I was there for three months this year getting all those swims in and, you know, I might have to be there for three full months next year just to get six swims in. So I'm not really looking forward to it. I'm just so happy right now to be back in Australia on my last day of quarantine and and just knowing I'm so close to being out in the community and, and seeing my friends is um is so good. But I've got, yeah, a big year next year. I want to get all seven done, tick off that box, uh, get the world title 
And then I have not booked any more swims for two years afterwards. I'm like, I'm not going back <laughs> after that. I'm going to be so over swimming the English Channel by the end of next year. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure there are some more challenges. You could swim to Tasmania or somewhere. Uh, are there any swims in the world that uh, yeah. that you're really keen on, on doing apart from the English Channel? I know you've, I mean, you've, we haven't even talked about it, but you have <laughs> the world record in the Bahamas, the 120-kilometer swim, which is amazing. Maybe we'll talk about that in a minute, but... Um, have you got any swims in mind that you'd really like to do that you just haven't had the chance? There's nothing really burning, my burning desires at the moment. Marathon swimming is a very expensive sport and I don't get all my costs covered, even though I do get sponsorship, which I'm very grateful for. So I can't, I can't keep doing this forever. People just think, oh, you can do this swim or that swim, you know, do a swimming off channel or cook straight or blah, blah, blah. So I have to be really strategic with what marathons I choose because I don't have a lot of resources to to put towards that. So, you know, maybe I'll take two years off after channel swimming next year if I can squeeze all seven in. Um, I'm not sure. I'm really just focused on, on getting those seven in and I can't really commit to anything beyond that. Do, do, do you have a desire to, you've, you're going to have the most channel swims, do you have a desire to be like the quickest across the channel? Um, well, it'd be lovely if I could grab that <laughs> title, but um, I'm not really geared up for speedy swimming. So most of your listeners will know that there's a 10-kilometer event for marathon swimming. It only came in a few Olympics ago. It's still a fairly new thing. But the swimmers that excel at that are pool swimmers who have a background in 800 and 1500 metres swimming. And so if I was to try and get the fastest swim across the English Channel, I would go for the women's record because it's women's and men's record. Um, it, it would be really tough unless I committed to a training program that was of like Olympic standard as in qualifying to the 10 kilometers Olympics. I'd have to be at that standard to beat the record. It's, it's a fast time. It's an amazing time. But she did it in seven hours, 25. My fastest swim is eight hours, 51. Although I went with a, a secondary pilot, not my main pilot. And my main pilot was out that day with another channel swimmer. And he was like, you would have done an eight hours, 30 if you swam with me that day. And I was like, yeah, I think I would. Because it's interesting. There's so many variables in the English channel. So one pilot might start like at 5 a.m. in the morning. Another pilot might start at 7 a.m. in the morning. And it makes a big difference, little choices like that, because the tides are so strong and the weather is so changeable. But mainly about the tides, they have their own theories about at what point and where they should put the swimmer in the tide. And when I say in the tide, I don't mean the swimmer gets a push to France because the tide is actually running straight through the English Channel. So it's like running at 90 degrees to where we want to go. So it's not helpful. So we're always tacking on an angle to the tide. So it makes a difference because if we're tacking on angles towards the tide, where the pilot puts you in that tide, it's going to affect your performance. So my main pilot basically was like, I think I could have got you across faster. And I was like, yeah, I think you could have too. So even if my, my peak, I was eight hours 30, I'm still just over an hour off the world record <laughs> for women. So it's not anything I'm really planning on doing. I got a lot of respect for her. She can keep that one. <laughs> 
And uh, I'd I'd love to know more about the the Bahamas swim. How did you how did you plot that out? Uh, and and that is you know the world record for the longest unassisted swim, male or female, at at one hundred and twenty four point four kilometres. How did you plot that course out? So I'd been swimming in the English Channel the years prior and been failing. I'm actually exceptionally good at failing, for even though I, I do have a list of things I've succeeded in swimming. And it was really hard because I was having successive years where every major swim I was attempting was a failure. So in 2011, I failed at triple crossing. You know how that turned out to be hypothermia. In 2012, I was closer to be hypothermia. I realized that you know, I was not going to finish that triple crossing. So I pulled myself out in 2012. 2013, I tried to swim between Cuba and the USA, and then I was swarmed by incredibly venomous box jellyfish. And so I was pulled out and I was like death warmed up on the way back. They spurred me back to the America after that swim. So, like three really shitty years. I've, I've seen footage of the box jellyfish. I, I know we're taking another diversion now, but boy, there are a lot of things you've got to come up against out there. You know, we've talked about hypothermia and just being fit enough and lack of sleep and all the rest of it. And now, you know, sea creatures. It's pretty amazing. Yes. It's, well, you, you know, when you swim in the ocean, it's a part of that wild environment. And, you don't know what strange thing is going to happen. So that wasn't expected. We were more worried about sharks and, and bumped jellyfish because we picked a year when traditionally they weren't around. Anyway, so that swim was thwarted, you know, just horrible. It was a horrible ending to a swim. You never want to be in that much pain. And I just wanted, like, I wanted to get a major run on the board and I, this is leading into 2014, and I didn't want to go back and re-attempt the triple crossing of the English Channel. I just, I was burnt as in, well, to me, in the Bahamas swim, I was literally burnt by the sun. But the the point I was at was I was I was mentally burnt out, like just throwing everything I had in my life, putting everything second, and then going to the English Channel year after two years in a row and failing at this triple crossing, and then having this huge disappointment about Cuba USA swim. And I just wanted a big run on the board, and I thought I you know I feel like I'm physically capable of actually swimming the distance of a new world record. There was a lot of contention about what even was the world record beforehand because in marathon swimming, unfortunately, there are some people who use that as a platform to find fame quickly. And occasionally there's some fraudulent people that, that pop up in, in our world. And I, um, how did this come about? I don't know. I think I'm, I'm going off topic slightly. Anyway, I felt like I had the ability to get across and I could do it legitimately and prove to the world that, you know, I, oh, oh, that's where I was, where I was coming from was no one actually knew what the world record was because there were so many claims and people couldn't verify them because there was no universally accepted system for verifying marathon swims that were outside the scope of a local swimming, open water swimming governing body. So there was just contention. So no one knew what it was. So I didn't even know exactly what I was chasing. I think it was a record about 108 kilometers. That wasn't really, there wasn't a consensus in the marathon swimming community that that even was the world record. So I thought, well, I'll just try and go quite a bit past that. And then if it is the world record, I've passed it. And if it isn't, then, you know, I've passed it anyway. So that's when I set, set trying to swim 128 kilometers. And then I did successfully swim 124. They cut a tiny bit at the end of the course out, which was fun. Um, and I, I got that win that I, you know, that I'd needed. I needed just something to go my way because the last few years was was really tough. And yeah, I was out there. I was, you know, 
basically just looking at sand and blue water. Main, that was mainly my entertainment for 42 hours and, and being burned by the sun and, and stung by box jellyfish, but not as bad. The venom was not as bad as is in Cuba. So there are different varieties of box jellyfish, and I think that that one wasn't wasn't as deadly. Even just staying awake for 41 hours, I think, I think I'd find very hard. How, how do you train for that? Do you, I know you were saying you're doing 20-hour training swims. Is, is, the, is the staying awake part of your training? And how long did you sleep for afterwards? <laughs> it's funny. People think, like, and I thought this too, I thought that possibly you can train your body to be used to sleep deprivation. But then I was speaking to a specialist doctor um, and he's been doing research into this because he's doing a PhD on melatonin and, and for whatever reason. And he's like, there are people who work in oil rigs offshore who are literally on constant night shift for several months on end and their bodies still never get used to what they're putting themselves through, which is staying awake through the night, sleeping through the day, which is unnatural. But the body doesn't adjust. It cannot adjust. So don't even worry about trying to train yourself for deprivation. And I was so relieved when he said that because I had kind of considered training myself for sleep deprivation. But I figured that if I tried to train myself you know, throughout the year, because I'm training throughout the year for these goals, all it would do would be like run my body down and it means I wouldn't get to train efficiently. And if I did try, as in effectively, if I did try and train effectively, I would exhaust myself to a point where I'm sure that I would expose myself too high of a risk to injury or illness or mental burnout or also, which is something no one really talks about, if you're super exhausted as an athlete and you're driving your car, you're a hazard on the road, um, not just to yourself, but to other people. Like, you know, accidents can happen within a microsecond. And, you know, they talk about in Australia there's, you know, Transport Accident Commission uh, funded ads saying, you know, don't drive when fatigued. But I guess in the sporting world, there's, there's no real kind of conversation going on. If you're getting up, training early in the morning, like 4.35 in the morning, then you go to work and then you train again at night and, you know, and you're not getting minimal sleep at night, like that's, that's an issue. So I was really glad that I was like, okay, I don't have to train for that. You can't train for that and I don't have to put myself through that. It's the fastest way to get sick, you know, run yourself down, run your immunity down, and then you pick up whatever's hanging around. I don't really have idols so much except if I was going to say there was an exception to the rule it would be Alison Streeter that lady who had swum 43 crossings of the English Channel because when I started channel swimming it was like a whole new world it's a really different sport even within marathon swimming it's really different to other marathons and so when I was discovering this sport and there's so much amazing history and colorful characters like you know if you don't haven't heard of Deb Red look Des Renford, look him up, read his book. If you haven't heard of Lynn Cox, an American cold water swimmer. She's amazing. She's an amazing book, Swimming to Antarctica. So I was just like immersing myself in this world of these amazing characters who swam the English Channel before. And like, I got wrapped up in the romanticism of swimming to France and like Captain Matthew Webb, the first man who did it in 1875. 
and I got wrapped up in the amazingness of this woman who had swum the English Channel three times nonstop, the only woman in history, and she'd also done it 43 times. So I guess early on in my career, she was she was definitely my idol, but I don't really I don't really idolize people anymore. But I'm really inspired by everyday people who go through enormous challenges, um, you know, who have been through accidents or have had terminal illnesses, and you know they they keep pushing through and, and they keep inspiring other people through just you know their everyday life and and their attitudes. So yeah, everyday people I think are what I draw my inspiration from these days. And well. Speaking of which, I mean, you uh, you were the coach of um, the oldest man to do a double crossing. Yeah, Rick Sierra. He's an amazing character. So he's a farmer from regional Victoria, from Maryborough. And I met him at a, an open water event where he was swimming a five-kilometre race. And I used to hand out flyers saying, do you want to swim the English Channel? And he picked up a flyer. He said, oh, maybe I could do that. And he said, oh, you know, I'm doing a five-kilometre event today. And I've done it before. And I was like, what? And he told me like, he, he'd approximate time we'd done it before in the past. And I was like, you can swim the English Channel. And then I literally planted a seed. And then he came back to me a few months later. And he was like, I think, 56 at that time, or 55 when he signed up to swim it. And then he swam the English Channel at 56. And then he did it so well. And he cruised through the training. Like, this guy, like, I don't know if it's the thing with all farmers, but he just had this steely determination. Nothing's a problem. You know, he, this guy can sleep it in a wagon in the back of his van, like, you know, so he's not precious in any way. Doesn't complain. And I was like, he got out of the end of his crossing. I was like, I think he could do a double crossing. And then that idea grew on him. And then a couple of years later, he's like, all right, let's do the double crossing. And I was just like, wow. oh my God. And yeah, he trained the house down and it was hard for him because being in regional Victoria, he wasn't near our group of swimmers. We had a solid group of English Channel people training up in my program, but we were based in Melbourne and he couldn't come down that often. And so he'd be swimming all these long swims in his local lake by himself and then the local lake got green algae and then oh. he couldn't swim outdoors unless he drove all the way to Melbourne. And, you know, like, like you know, stories like that is just phenomenal. At 59 years of age, you know, being a farmer, it's not like, you know, he's someone who's retired or, or semi-retired. He had a family. He's got a young daughter still at school. You know, he's working full-time. He doesn't even live near where most of us train near, near the open water. And you know, he gets in and he swims. He's guts out for 29 and a half hours. And I was on his boat, you know, for every stroke of his swim. And then the lovely lady, Melanie Holland, who was also crewing with me to support him. And we were inspired. We were inspired by just being witnessed and having that the chance to be part of his journey and just like he threw up the whole entire second crossing of his English channel. Oh. Like he'd be throwing up every hour or two. Wow. And then he'd take his feed. He didn't complain, he'd throw up and he'd just keep swimming. So if anyone is into marathon swimming or swimming his channel and you might throw up and you might end your swim. Throwing up doesn't have to end your swim. You know, you just keep getting some energy down, some liquid, something is better than nothing. And uh, keep playing through it because you'd be amazed. The human body is an incredible thing. You'd be amazed at what it can do under dire circumstances if it really believes that it, it wants to keep moving forward and it wants to keep swimming towards its goal. It sounds like you really enjoy the coaching aspect of it now. Do you see that as you take a break from channel swimming after next year? Do you think 
do you see yourself sort of moving into the coaching world full time? Well, I do have been in the past coaching full time. So I've coached 150 people just from the English Channel over the years. So essentially, it's kind of like a full time job. I'm moving now more to supporting people in a mentoring role and, and coaching online because there's so many people around the world that would love support, but they can't always physically be at the training sessions they run or the camps they run because it's Australia and it's a long way for most of the world to come and visit for a training camp. So I am actually launching free a free seminar on November 25th and 26th. People can come along at, and it's designing your own pool and open water training program, give people maybe some more insights into the things that they should consider if they're building their own program uh, for a marathon swim. Or also, even if they already have a squad coach or they already have an open water program that they've organized or someone's helped them with, just to maybe add some things they could add to add some value to what they're doing or to mix it up and make it a bit more interesting because being out and doing those long swims for hours and then can get a bit monotonous, to say the least. Um, so if anyone is interested in just coming along to that, we've already got 133 people signed up and I only launched it three days ago. So it's pretty exciting. It's doing, doing well. I can give you the link if you want and you can post that and with the podcast or on your page and, and share it if anyone's interested. And so do you do all your uh, cold water swimming in, down at Jarvis Bay or do you still, I know you used to live in Melbourne, but now you've you moved up to Sydney. Do you still do any down in Melbourne? So I only moved to Sydney late last year. So I'm still kind of figuring out, you know, a good routine. Up here I've been swimming in Manly Dam, which is even colder than the harbour. So the coldest thing you can access in the vicinity of CBD here is, is Manly Dam, the northern beaches, just near Manly. And on top of that, you, then you've got the harbour, which is a, about two degrees warmer than the dam. And then you've got the ocean. So unfortunately, unlike Melbourne, where the bay is quite cold from late March onwards, in Sydney, the ocean here doesn't really get cold until late July. So it really forced me this year to swim in the dam to get that extra cold cold water in. So, I'm yeah, I'm kind of finding a routine. I do do a lot of pool swimming because... It, there is nothing that compares to quality interval training in the pool to get your pace up, to get strength work in, to work on technique and different elements of your stroke. Everyone's got weak um, patches in their stroke at different spots. So the predominant volume I do is, is pool-based, but when the water gets cold, I then ramp up the cold water element. And so do you swim off the coast uh, very much as well? I guess being in the northern beaches, you've got access to you know i'm sure the northern beaches people would say it's the best beaches in the world do you uh, do you go out in the in the ocean very much out there they're very beautiful beaches up there i'm limited to what i can do if i want to swim for say more than two and a half hours so if i'm swimming for more than two and a half hours i really need access to feed to rehydrate and get energy which means i need to organize a kayaker so I plan longer swims strategically when I can get support around me and when it's a cold water temperature, which, as you know, the water's temperature always it fluctuates throughout the year. So it takes some planning. Um, because I've been doing single crossings the last few years, I haven't had to do like heaps and heaps and heaps of cold water swimming. Uh, and then I also do a little bit of swimming on the last day of camp. I get in and I do, I usually do about four hours of the six-hour swim that they're doing just to get some extra training in. And that's always fun. Camps are amazing. We actually just scraped this camp. And so I have two people to help me. That's why I say we. 
Um, so Peter and Charlie, they're also coaches, they're awesome. We scraped in the Jowers Bay camp. Literally, it was 12 hours before um, Premier Dan announced the restrictions back in July on Melbourne. And it was like the last bout of freedom for all the people that attended <laughs> Melbourne because after that, things just got really tough. And they were like, they would, there's just like this saying in the community down there. They're like, thank God we got to Jarvis Bay because if we hadn't have had that last chance of freedom and swimming outdoors and, and being in a community environment, then they would have gone much more nuts being in that lockdown environment. I know you said um, before that you're in a pretty nice hotel room now in, in your quarantine, you get out tonight, but you must be very used to doing a lot of exercise. How, how have you gone stuck inside for two weeks? I thought I would go nuts. I thought I'd be jumping off the walls, but I've, I feel really at the moment, and I'm in a very good place generally. I feel like I'm on purpose with with what I do with my life. So I originally wanted to be the best in the world or something. But when I made that decision, like I was 19, so that was like a long time ago. And the last few years, what's come more important to me rather than just being the best marathon swimmer in the world is inspiring and empowering people. And in the last few years, I've had the opportunity to coach so many people and be on amazing journeys. And in the last six months or so, I've got into advocacy work, you know, advocating on behalf of women who are in domestic violence situations or who have been and people who have or struggling, you know, they're struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. And the media are really interested in that story and it gives me a chance to feel like I'm more on purpose with where I want to be. So I think I'm in such a good space. So I've been locked down for two weeks, but this is the fourth podcast I've done in the last week. And an article just came out in Marie Claire um, yesterday and they nominated me as one of the 20 women of 2020. So it's really good to see that, you know, I, I my desire to kind of give to the community and to empower and inspire and make a difference and be an advocate is being so well received by people. So even though I'm literally locked in a room, I also feel like I'm in such a good space that, you know, it doesn't matter if I'm locked down in a room here or if I'm locked down in a room in England, as long as I can feel like I'm on purpose, then, you know, I, I will continue to be a high-functioning person. But, you know, there were times maybe a couple of years ago where if I was locked in a room for 12 days, like I would have been jumping off the wall. So it's not like I'm always like this. I've just kind of found my way to this spot in time. In the last three months, I've become more active talking to the media about um, representing women who are experiencing domestic violence. And what really prompted that was the research that I was reading that the UN and other organizations were releasing saying that incidents of domestic violence has arisen during lockdown. So women are experiencing, a lot of women for the first time experiencing domestic violence whilst in lockdown, like more than would be proportionate in another year. Uh, and then also how hard it is for women who are in those situations because they can't go out and get some respite as normally they would, especially in Melbourne, which had such a harsh lockdown. So I felt compelled to, to just start a conversation about that and not necessarily being an expert or having advice or anything, but literally just saying this is a situation that's occurring 
and I wanted to be part of the national conversation. When I was in the UK, as a part of the national conversation there, and you know that that was just it. I just wanted to keep it keep it in the news because I thought that it's something that could be easily brushed aside when there's so many other topics that are pertinent, like finding a vaccine for COVID or you know the footy score for that week. So um, I was successful in just making it part of the conversation, um, which I was really happy about. And then that spurred further conversations in longer form journalism. And yeah, so now I'm more active in that sphere. And it's really just about starting conversations. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a researcher in the area and I'm still kind of getting on top of a lot of the research that's out there. It's fascinating. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just about kind of bringing, bringing that out to the forefront and, um, I'm on the phone. I'm just getting knocked at the door because I'm in quarantine still. <laughs> They're checking that you're there. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't stop. They just keep knocking. Literally, they will just keep knocking. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think they're still knocking. I think that's dinner, actually. I think that's my dinner delivery. At 20, 20 past four in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, they bring dinner early. It's frozen food. So, yeah, like, they, it's a rotation. I'm vegetarian. Frozen food, either Thai food or... Like, well, it's usually some sort of Asian food because I'm, I'm vegetarian. Like, Asian food works well with vegetarian. So it's just yep. like, well, what frozen food am I getting tonight? I'm curious. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so that's a little bit about my advocacy work. Um, I'm creating some T-shirts to sell so some proceeds can go to Sydney Women's Shelters for women who need emergency accommodation. They provide accommodation for up to um, three months for women and children that need it. So that's something else that I'm working on. Um, the t-shirt's not ready yet. I'm trying to find an Australian supplier um, that can supply them. It's amazing. You think you'd think that something like that's pretty straightforward, you know, just organising a t-shirt. But when you kind of get into the nitty gritty of organising these things, there's so many things that need to be lined up and considered and locked in. And uh, it's it's been like a two month process. I thought it would be really quick to organise. So yeah, I've just got little projects and and things that I'm working on, and I do a bit of keynote speaking. Coming! I'm on the phone! <laughs> so, what else am I doing? Yeah. So, keynote speaking is in corporate, um, sometimes to community organisations, schools, and I love doing that, talking about the marathon swimming journey and, and you know, just things like dealing with failure and uh, you know, what it's like to set big goals and, and to really put yourself out there, and, you know, all sorts of things. Yep. So I do executive coaching as well and moving into that world and that's really fulfilling, helping people one-on-one achieve their goals. And yeah, in a, in a good space, loving Sydney. Um, I do visit Melbourne as much as I can um, and I haven't seen my family since June, so I can't wait to get down there for Christmas. And you can get down there now, I think. So that's good. Yes, I'm not sure if they've lifted the quarantine upon returning to Sydney yet. I haven't been abreast of that news. I know I can go to Melbourne. I just don't want to have to quarantine my- Myself in the way you back. don't want to do it again. Yeah, no. Now I've done two weeks. I think I'm done. I'm done with that. And I guess so. I guess the best the best way for people who want to kind of follow your journey and and, and some of the stuff you're doing is is your website and the and the Facebook page. I've noticed the Facebook page has been updated quite a lot recently. I guess you're stuck in a hotel room. That's a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I have zero travel time at the moment. And like in Sydney, usually you know if you go into the city every day, one can spend three hours commuting. So. You know, I'm very time efficient at the moment. Thank you so much to Chloe McArdle 
for taking so much time during hotel isolation for chatting to me on the pod. Chloe has some English Channel solo swim advice talks coming up, and these are online at the end of November. So if you're interested, get over to my website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net. And from there, you can register for Chloe's talks, check out Chloe's website, and you'll also find her in next month's edition of Marie Claire. Thanks again to Chloe. That was really cool. My name's Mark West. Hopefully you're all taking care. Catch you next time on the pod. Thank you.